you know you are capable of more because you have a burning desire to get the absolute most out of life. To starve your fears, to follow your dreams, and to realize your true potential. And we are going to do that together. This is The Andy Stort Show. Let's go. What is up, everybody? Welcome back to The Andy Stort Show, a show where we come together to starve our fears, follow our dreams, and fulfill our true potential. We are on this journey of personal development together And we are going to learn from some of the best people out there, from people doing interesting things, as well as share our journeys with each other, the good, the bad, and the ugly, as well as the exciting and the interesting and the adventurous. And speaking of adventure, I have quite an interesting guest on today. Brad Weimert is an adventurer, a philanthropist, and a serial entrepreneur. He founded Easy Pay Direct in 2009, an online payment gateway service business selling between $1 million and $100 million online. The platform serves more than 60,000 merchants, and Brad focuses on purposefully creating extraordinary experiences in order to learn and grow both himself and the relationships around him. And the reason I'm having Brad on is not just because he started and runs a successful payments business that in itself is quite impressive, as well as his background, but what's really interesting and why I found out about Brad is because he has not only been running adventure-based experiences for his friends throughout the last few years, but he has created his latest adventure, which is called Unplugged Fiji, where he has cultivated or he's cultivating a group of 250 extraordinary entrepreneurs to take them on a chartered jet from the U.S. down to Fiji to learn, unplug, and connect to create powerful experiences and meaningful, lasting relationships. It's pretty interesting and intriguing what he's doing. He also shares on this podcast how he got started in his business, how he fared in a very interesting uh, adventure climbing a mountain 34 times based on a challenge or rather how he challenged himself and how he overcame adversity in that. And he talks about how he got his mohawk and why he's kept it over the last three years, among other things. It's really an interesting interview. I hope you enjoy it. I know I did. Let me know what you think. Here we go with my interview with Brad Weimert. Brad, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, sir. Good to have you here. Uh, We got connected. I actually found out about you through a mutual friend, John Rulin, who I had on this podcast, actually the previous iteration of this podcast, a long time back. He was episode 26 of the Entrepreneur Hot Seat, which was back in July 2017. So it's been quite a while. But I got a, got a chance to know him through John Vroman and the uh, Front Row Dads event. And then uh, he mentioned you, I think, in his email list for this really interesting, intriguing, unique trip that you're putting together that I want to get into today. But uh, you and I chatted briefly and I thought mm-hmm. it would make for a good, a good interview. So I'd love to start with a little bit of your background. Like, who are you? Where did you come from? And how did you get to where you are today? Just a little, little light, light conversation here. Uh, yeah. Yeah, well, the I think the the beginning of business was Cutco knives. So I know both John Broman and John Rulin because we grew up selling Cutco knives together. And it's a it has now been dubbed the the Cutco mafia. There are probably yeah, I don't know. There are a lot of people that have done very well at some point sold Cutco knives. 
Yeah, and seriously, I've noticed that. I mean, I've I went to you know Hal Elrod's event, the best year ever event, where I met a lot of those guys, and I'm like, oh my gosh, there's so many successful entrepreneurs that came from Cutco. And then it's hard not to sit here and think, I really wish I would have found that you know, when I was younger and gone to work for because I eventually found sales in my 30s and I love it. And that's I think that's such an important skill to be successful as an entrepreneur or anything else. But man, to discover that sooner would be fantastic. Yeah, you know, what's funny about um, I think any well-run sales organization and Vector Marketing is the the organization that sells Cutco knives. They recruit college kids really heavily and they make this huge fuss about it's not about the money it's about the experience and you know as a college kid I, i'm thinking yeah yeah okay it's, it's about <laughs> the crazy. money i need some money right <laughs> pay me <laughs> and the people doing really well at cutco now the ones doing really well are making a few hundred grand a year but at the time as a college kid i was making 100 grand a year and that was amazing wow so, that is amazing as a college kid yeah it also makes you wonder why you're going to college right. if you have <laughs> exactly. the capacity to... But you can get a corporate job making $60,000 a year. Like that doesn't make sense, right? Exactly right. So I had those questions, but the notion that it was the experience um, that was worthwhile more than anything else was totally correct. I grew up as a <laughs> pretty hardcore delinquent. I mean, I got in lots of trouble in mm-hmm. high school and before. Lots of stories around that. And sales was a uh, was the first time that it became very clear to me, or I had a kind of a structure that said, "Oh, if I just put more energy in, I will get more reward out," and it, that's commission, right? Yeah. Um, but that was the beginning of entrepreneurship for me because that equation seemed really clear. So uh, yeah, I met a bunch of cool people through Cutco, and the, the experience component became more and more relevant. But as I went down the chain, it became clear to me that I was trading my time for money. And I was like, okay, great. I'm selling, I'm making good money, I'm getting good experience, but I'm only as good as my last sale. And so I hit this point where I said, okay, I'm going to build a list of what I need in the next venture. And it was things like no cap on income, location independent, um, doesn't get crushed when the economy tanks, residual by nature. And then one of the big ones was I needed to be building a network while I was working. So, and the reason for that was as I had sold a lot of knives, I was selling knives to Mrs. Jones, right? Which is, it was usually a housewife that had expendable income. That's great, except after years of doing this, I have a list of 3,000 housewives that, unless I'm gonna sell them some other house service, it just, there wasn't a lot of value in that list. So, I, ultimately um, looked at a variety of different industries and decided to get into credit card processing, which checks a lot of those boxes. But the big one, our target market are pretty high-level entrepreneurs. So the Easy Pay Direct was created and we work with e-commerce companies that are doing between 1 and probably 100 million a year. Um, And those are all entrepreneurs that I'm interested in talking to or learning about or not all of them, I should say, but there's a higher likelihood I'll be interested in talking to them or learning <laughs> right. about them. Right. Some you may not want to talk to, but just by the fact of how you're doing business, the type of clients you would be working with, then that's going to build a stronger network of those higher net worth individuals who are doing you know, more interesting things that you can learn from and that you want to be around. You got it. So how did you, you get that company started? I mean, it's not so easy to start a payment company, I would think <clears> you would need a background there, maybe some capital, some partners, some, some technology, whatever. 
Um, mm-hmm. How did that get going? Uh, I did it in a way that I will never do ever again, uh, probably. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but a way that a lot of people do, which functionally is just bootstrapping and figuring things out. But the transition into it, I didn't have any desire to start a payment company. I just had a desire to be involved in the payment space. It's really fast paced. There's a lot of tech changes all the time and it's residual. It checked a bunch of my boxes. And when the economy tanks, at least from you know, the late 90s, mid 2000s, when the economy, uh, when credit card usage wasn't like 100% of all commerce, mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, cash usage today is so low relative right. to the whole picture. So when the economy tanked in the past, credit card spending would actually go up because people would then live on their credit. But in any event, I was a 1099 agent for a credit card processing company for a few years. And over time, it became clear to me that they weren't sort of filling all of the the needs of the people that I ran into. And Mm -hmm. so then I started contracting with other companies. And then it sort of spread out to this, okay, well, if I'm doing this, I should just do it. So I slowly built a residual and then leveraged the hell out of a couple credit cards to advertise, develop some software, and start Easy Pay Direct. Wow. Okay. So you started building it on the side. And then you finally decided you got to a point where you need to take the leap and use some credit cards. You had customers in hand, which is always a great way to go. But still a scary jump to make. Were you scared at that time? If so, how did you get past that fear to go out on your own? Yeah, it was very. I very much did it on the side for a period of time. So I was selling Cutco and then I would also do this on the side. Okay. So I would sell Cutco, then allocate time for this. And that was a really difficult thing to juggle. Specifically because I was selling Cutco during the day. Yeah. And the only time you can really catch business owners is also during the day. Right. So there was huge overlap. You know, if, normally if you have a side hustle, you can work on it at night or right. you know, weekends or whatever. Kind of internet business or something, you could be working all night long or whatever it is. Yeah. So eventually I hit the point where I said, okay, now I can just move. And that was probably the scariest transition because I went from, Hey, I know that I can make, you know, X amount a month to live off of to, Nope, I'm just going to lean completely on the residual. And at the time, I think the residual was maybe two, three grand a month. And I had a mortgage that was probably 2,300 bucks a month at the time. That was the scariest transition. And I think that, you know, for me, one of the most difficult things in life for me is to establish beliefs where I'm really bought into something, sold out on something, yeah. and I'm really convicted in it. And I bring this up because a lot of people, if you ask them a question like that, depending on the environment that you're in, you'll get a faith-based answer. And you'll get something like a trust in God or something. Yeah, just knew it was going to work out. Yeah. And you know, I don't have that conviction. I label myself as agnostic if I'm pushed. And I frequently say, I would love it if I had a strong conviction in God because it would make life easier. I just don't know how. Right. Um, So in lieu of that, what I do have conviction in is my capacity to get answers and figure things out myself. And I know that I'm disciplined. That's the world that I try to live in. We definitely um, have some things in common there. Uh, I mean, I'm not too religious myself and I don't rely on any kind of divine faith. It's more like, okay, I really want to get this done. How do I get this done? Let's break it down into steps and milestones and learn from other people and figure out what I need to do. But it's still scary to make that jump because you don't know what's going to happen. But you already know you've got some great skills and experience that you can fall back on, which is, which is good. So now you've been doing that for what, six years? You've been running this business? Yeah. Yep. I mean, you know, I've been in the space since 06. So I've been in the space for 12 years now. 
Easy Pay Direct was formed in 09, but we really didn't start. I mean, 09 for a couple of years, it was really just me. So mm-hmm. like the organization was there, but you know, no other people. So in 12, we started hiring people, started building software, et cetera. Got it. And so how has the, the business grown since then? Largely through strategic partnerships and events. I don't think events are a great path for growth. I think they can be if you have capital. It's a difficult path if you don't have capital uh, with this particular type of product. With other products, I think it can be great. But we have a uh, you know credit card processing for our target market for established entrepreneurs is not a quick sale. So there's a sales cycle to it. Right. Interesting. Um, and the timing has to be right. It's not like you know selling roses on the side of the road where it's an emotional purchase and they're going to do it or they're not. You know, right. You can turn. There's a sales cycle in B2B. Yeah, so I'm in, I'm in B2B as well. And uh, I, I've definitely recognized that. I mean, it's usually 12, 18, 24 months and the timing has to be right to, to catch somebody. What's been your greatest accomplishment through all of this? What are you most proud of at this point? There are different ways to label this, but I think we have bias relative to... There's a term for this. Bias relative to how close you are to an event. right? Mm-hmm. So what I feel a lot of pride in at the moment, I think is a product of what I get interviewed about or talk about <laughs> on a routine basis. And for me, those are moments when I prove myself wrong and when I'm really convicted in something and then through my own doing, find out that there's more to it or a different answer. But I let myself break that conviction. And so a big one for me recently was I climbed this mountain a lot of times in a row, <laughs> which okay. is a crazy story. But the long tail of it you can find on everestingx2.com. Okay. Everest like the mountain, ingx2.com. But the the reason that that's the URL for it is because uh, this guy I know, Jesse Itzler, who is a really, really interesting entrepreneur, started Marquee Jets, started Zico Coconut Water. He's one of the owners of the Atlanta Hawks. Wow. He's also a little bit crazy. And he, <laughs> I heard him speaking actually a little just over a year ago. And he said, Somebody asked him what kind of crazy thing he was going to do next. And he said, well, I rented a mountain for a weekend and I'm going to get 140 people to come out and climb the mountain 17 times in a row. And if they climb it 17 times in a row, it's the height equivalent of Mount Everest. Okay. So when I heard this, I immediately thought, oh shit, that's my kind of crazy. I need to do that. So one of the rules that I have is if something really interests me or excites me, I want to take some sort of action to put it into motion immediately. And in that moment, I set up a call with Jesse's business partner to make sure that I could do that. So a couple months later, I find myself on the phone with Jesse's business partner. And I maybe a mistake, <laughs> which was uh, I had had a few Manhattans. Okay. And I said, Mark, I was like, are you seriously giving people three days to do this? And he's like, oh, yeah. Uh, do you think that's not long enough? And I said, motherfucker, I could do that shit twice in three days. Ah. I don't know exactly why I said that. Yeah. But as soon as I said it, I thought that was the wrong thing to say. Right. Um, And he responded and said, oh, oh yeah. And I was like, well, I don't know. Maybe ask me in the morning after I've had some sleep. Right. Or you get your foot out of your mouth and stuff the fuck up was the verbatim. Wow. So I committed to doing this thing 34 times over the course of three days. And there's a long story to it, but I only had seven weeks to train for it. The time constraints were in, incredibly intense because the event was designed for 17 times, not 34 times. 
But the thing that I think that I was most proud of was about halfway through doing it, the math was not in my favor. And not only was the math not in my favor, I did not have enough time to finish at all mathematically. Mm. I mean, it seemed mathematically impossible. And there are moments in life when you want to quit because it's hard. And then there are moments in life when you want to quit because it doesn't seem possible at all. Right. There's Uh, no point in continuing because you're not going to make it. Right. And that was one of those moments. And fortunately, through some friends and also kind of a, an internal mantra for me, which is how you do one thing is how you do everything. I kept going because what I know about myself is that I don't quit. That was the rule that kept me going is I don't quit. And how I do one thing is how I do everything. And this is quitting if I just stop right now, even though I can't do it. And in the end, that result... Well, actually, it doesn't even matter. <laughs> you can go check it out and see how that finished out. Okay. But what I'm proud of was that moment of, I don't think this is possible and I'm not going to quit anyway, because that's a more valuable lesson and more valuable trait to have in my life than the outcome. Man, that's interesting. So the, uh, the site is everestingx2.com. And we've got to yep. go there to find out the answer. How, how many times <laughs> do you... Sorry, but I think that that's a more relevant point, which is, yeah. hey, what are you, you proud of and why? Yeah. What are you proud of and why? And the answer is, I'm proud of breaking a limiting belief, right? In a very difficult situation. I mean, I hadn't slept for 40 hours. I've been exercising for 22 hours straight, uh, et cetera. Yeah, that's incredible. Uh, I used to do a lot of mountain climbing and backpacking and camping, you know, hiking mostly in California when I lived there. I lived in California 11 years, some in Colorado, Washington. I don't know if I'd, have, <laughs> if I'd be able to do that. And I have a friend who's been on Everest twice that I used to climb with, but I, I don't know. Uh, that's an interesting... I never heard of that idea of Everesting, going up this mountain 17 times and then yeah. try to do it twice. It's pretty incredible. And to keep going, even though you knew that you weren't going to be able to finish it. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, it's, it's uh, uniquely crazy to Jesse Itzler, but I mean, really, it's an endurance challenge. It's not like actually climbing Everest where there's threats of death. Yeah, and technical and lack of oxygen, et cetera. But moving for that long consistently is no joke. You know, the average Ironman probably takes 15 hours. Right. I also think it's interesting that you know someone that rented a mountain. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I've heard of like buying an island, but I've never even heard of, I've never heard of renting a mountain. But speaking of that, you do some other interesting things. And I want to get to the trip that you're organizing. Um, Before I do though, going out there and doing things differently. You and I were talking before we recorded. Uh, you have a mohawk, which you don't see too many people uh, rocking these days other than uh, I did it once for like a charity event. Um, you said you've had yours for three years. A very good looking mohawk, I must say. Thank you. Um, I saw it in that. your picture ahead of time and I was very happy when we got on Zoom today and you still had it. And I like the story. So how did that come about? Yeah, so I will inevitably lose all my hair unless our doctors get their shit together and figure out how to stop that. Uh, <laughs> so several years ago, I just decided I was going to shave my head because I, I thought I'd take control of it instead of sort of slowly losing all my hair and right. being insecure about it. So I, I shaved my head for a couple of years. And at some point I thought, man, I wonder if I still have hair. So I let it grow back for about four months, hated the way it looked and said, hey, I'm just going to shave it again. So in the middle of shaving it, I kind of shaved one line down uh, one side of my head. And there was this really clean line. And I thought, uh, maybe I'll just shave the other side. And 
left a mohawk. And it was, it's funny because there was insecurity even looking at myself in the mirror with the mohawk. Yeah. <laughs> Cause it was, it was just so uncomfortable. It was like, you know, who has a mohawk? Right. I, God, I don't want anybody to, what, what's that? Nobody does. It's very counterculture. Right? It's very different. Totally. And I think that on some level, all of us have this desire to be accepted and you choose how you look. So you feel very judged when people don't accept you. <laughs> right. Um, so you, at least in some capacity, you choose how you look. So because of that, I thought, you know what, this is stupid that I feel uncomfortable. I'm going to, I'm going to keep this for brunch. And I was having brunch with, it was a, uh, you know, a low risk proposition. I was having brunch with four people I knew. Great. So I show up with Mohawk and they all kind of giggled, but they were like, no, it looks good, man. You should keep it. And I was like, well, I'm not going to keep it. Mm. They're like, no, you totally should. And I happened to be going to Vegas straight from there. So I said, okay, well, I'll just, I'll keep it on the plane and I'll go to Vegas with it and I'll shave it when I get to Vegas. Yeah. And then I'm in Vegas and I, you know, walked into the hotel with it and I thought, no, nah, I'll just keep it for Vegas. I'm in Vegas. You're in Vegas. You might as well keep it there. I'm in Vegas. You know, I was at a payment conference in Vegas, but I was still in. <laughs> it wasn't exactly a bachelor party, but still, it's Vegas. No, no. But, you know, that's something that people, if you're in the financial market, something that you will know is that finance people tend to let loose in a pretty serious way because they are not that way during the day. Right. Yeah. They've got a little uh, steam. You got it. So anyway, that I, I think that, you know, I had so much positive feedback in Vegas and it was also a really unique experience because people look at you differently when you have a Mohawk. So then I ended up keeping it. That's awesome. I and mean, I, I like the story because I like what you said about, you know, we all have these, you know, different levels of insecurities and we worry what people think about us. And so you end up dressing or styling yourself a different or certain ways and you wonder what are people going to think? And then you go out there and people are like, oh, that's cool. And maybe some people judge you, but who cares? That's more on them than it is on you, right? And then it becomes part of your look and now you're uniquely different. And I mean, I get on video with you today and, I, and I'm like, of course, this guy is a Mohawk. He's a badass. I've talked to him on the phone before. I know what he's doing. You know, he's running the business, putting together this trip. Like, it doesn't surprise me at all. I'm yeah. excited about it. Well, one of the lines that I remember uh, on a routine basis is people think about you far less often than you think about yourself. <laughs> That's so true. You know, we get all wrapped up in what people are going to think about us. Nobody yeah. gives a shit. It's so true. It's <laughs> Everybody's so... wrapped up in their own world and their right. own stuff. People don't you know? care. They care about their own. We think people are sitting around thinking about us, judging us, but they don't, they have their own stuff to worry totally. about. So funny. Well, I want to talk about this, this trip you're organizing because it also is very unique. And uh, again, I first heard about this uh, when John Rulin mentioned it in his uh, email newsletter. Uh, which is one of the very few that I open on a regular basis because he neglected it for a long time, but he's done a, he's done a damn good job with it since he started it back up. And um, I was really intrigued by this and was lucky enough to get on the phone with you. So tell us about the trip that you're organizing and uh, how it came about. Yeah. So, you know, I mentioned, uh, so the, the trip is called Unplugged. It's unpluggedfiji.com. And I'll tell you about the name in a minute, but my one of my core beliefs in life is, you know, we talked about how experience is more important than money. And that was a lesson that somebody tried to impart to me very early. And I only really internalized later, you know, I'm 38. And I internalized that probably in my early 30s. I thought, okay, well, this is actually, all this is compounding today and most days moving forward at the culmination of all of the things that I did in the past. 
But there's, there's guys that uh, there's guys at Cutco were actually right. The experience is important. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, unbelievable organization for anybody that has a chance to get go through it or have kids go through it. Really, really, really valuable. But yeah, you know, those experiences are transcend a lot of other things. And part of that are also the relationships that you build through that process. And that became very clear to me. I looked at all these things that I've done in my life personally and professionally, and they all start with some sort of relationship. And so I kind of went down this road a couple of years ago of trying to figure out, okay, well, if relationships are that important, how do I craft experiences to drive the relationships deep faster instead of leaving it to chance? And so I started doing a variety of things around that. Small group adventure trips. I do these sort of opulent dinners at my house in Austin, which have been pretty amazing. It's like a private chef. Sometimes we fly people in for them. We've had rappers there. We had the previous head of British Special Forces there. I mean, really eclectic, bizarre group. And the the prereq is just that. It's somebody that has impressed me that I want to connect with. There's no... You know, direct ROI. There's no effort to make money off it. Yeah. It's just that if you can create a unique experience, the like with like-minded people, or a unique experience yeah. with a high level of person, totally. the likelihood of building a relationship is much, much stronger, much higher. This idea has been in the works for a long time, but about a year ago, we kind of put pen to paper and started planning Unplugged Fiji. And Unplugged Fiji is a a trip where we are taking 250 entrepreneurs from Los Angeles to Fiji on a chartered plane for a five-day event in Fiji. And we are doing that because uh, we believe that entrepreneurs are frequently told that they're supposed to go on vacation and have balance in their life. And a good friend of mine, uh, Josh Lee, wrote this book, Balance is Bullshit. Uh And I'm I'm upset that he wrote it because I really like the name and I wanted to steal it. And my belief is that alignment is a lot more uh, valuable and realistic than balance for a lot of entrepreneurs. So Unplug Fiji is a chance to unplug from our day-to-day without losing alignment with everything else that's important to us. So once we're in Fiji, there are five tracks that we built the whole event around. Culture, growth, social, rejuvenation, and adventure. And the premise is that everybody wants to unplug in their own way. You know, some people need to be in like a, a tech-free cave to totally yeah. unplug. Yeah. And for, I think, most entrepreneurs, just being out of the office is enough to start that process. So yeah, five days in Fiji built around those tracks. And, and the, the beginning is this chartered plane where we're all going to be together and kicking off the event. Yeah. And when you say chartered plane, you're talking about an actual jet. I think it's a 737, right? It's an Airbus 330. Oh, an Airbus but, 330. Okay. Close in size. Yep. yep. 250 people, you said? Yep. Wow. So have you done anything like this before? Or did you just come up with this idea and say, I'm going to make this work? I don't think anybody's done anything like this before. I've never heard of this. Yeah. I don't think that I have yet to run into a fully chartered plane from the States to another country. There are a couple short hops that I've seen people do, but uh, no. And so, you know, I've done small group adventure trips on several occasions that are 10 people 12 people. And that is, that's kind of where my heart is. Like, I love that. I am perpetually on a mission to find the people that are, you know, high caliber entrepreneurs uh, that want to go on crazy adventures. And for me, a big part of that is the physical component, but just experiential stuff too. So I haven't done anything at this scale, but my business partner in this has been doing events in Fiji 
from New Zealand. So he's a New Zealander, has been okay. doing England to Fiji for 13 years. Okay. He has brought 30,000 people from New Zealand to Fiji over the course of 13 years. Wow. Okay. So you're working with someone that has some experience, at least with organizing events in Fiji, which is, sounds pretty valuable. Yep. Not with the same uh, type of audience, not right. with the chartered plane. Yeah, and coming uh, from the U.S. A little coming bit. from yeah, not with the U.S. But yeah, he's done events for a long time, so we've got a really, really good event team to help execute it. But this will be a new, a new experience, I think, for <laughs> for pretty much everybody. How do you charter a jet of that size? I mean, I, I don't really do much in you know, I'm not a pilot or anything. I imagine you could call a local airport and charter a Cessna or something if you needed it. But you know, a jet of that, do you call, just call United Airlines and say, hey, do you have a plane free on this day? I'd like to, I'd like to fly it down to Fiji with like 250 <laughs> of my friends. Or like, how does that work? Yeah, it's, uh, something like that. If you have no connections, that's a reasonable approach <laughs> to start the process. <laughs> okay. The, so you know, for the network. Yeah, for me, because my partner Steve has been doing this so long, we have some really, really strong connections with the airlines, the Fijian government, and some of the resorts. And that's a, I can't even, had I not had this, I would never tackle this. I mean, it's too big a thing to try to put those pieces together. At some point, you probably had to commit to this. I don't know if you had to put money down or whatever, where you, I know you, you're clearly just from talking to you, I can tell you're a very well networked person. I mean, people tell me I'm really good at networking. You obviously has a lot of great connections. Were you scared at all at that point that I'm not going to be able to actually fill this thing or recoup my money? Or did you already have a lot of people? Because I know you're taking applications for it and it's, a, it's quite a process. And I'm guessing at this point, you probably have more than enough demand, but there must have been, or maybe you don't, but there's, there must have been that moment where you're like, oh crap, I just committed to this. Am I actually going to fill 250 people on this jet? Sure. I think that you're you know, arrogant if you never have those thoughts. Right. And you're you naive. Like, oh yeah, I'll fill this, no problem. Right. Yeah. You're naive if you don't give those thoughts attention on some level. However, there's also kind of the entrepreneur brain that has to control that and decide how you're going to handle it. And so early on, you have to float the idea, right? You have to assess whether or not this is a good idea. And you have to ask people for objective responses or make sure you're asking the right sample um, of people. So I got lots of good feedback before we committed to it. And yeah, once I committed, for sure, there are those thoughts. But the feedback was so good and the concept is so unique. You know, one of the things that's really cool about Fiji as a location, it's astounding how few people that have the means have been there because it is, it's just in a part of the world that people perceive to be more difficult to get there. So having a direct flight from LA to Fiji yeah. is very cool. And uh, yeah, we've been super selective about the audience. You know, it's an invite only event and people can go to the site and request an invite. But we want to make sure that the caliber of people is high. We want to make sure that we've got established entrepreneurs that are awesome to be around and interesting people. Yeah, uh, no doubt. And you're taking all most of that on personally, right? So you're you're reviewing applications, interviewing people. Like, how do you decide who goes on this trip? Yeah. So we have my partner and I are uh, Steve and I are talking to everybody at some point. We also have somebody else that's doing initial calls and taking deposit for the event. But ultimately, we want to make sure that we talk to everybody that is going to be on the on the trip. Because it's really important to us that we have a, a high caliber. Ultimately, you, know, you should hear the through line here, which is that relationships are the foundation of everything. Yep. And so if we don't have a really high caliber there, it's going to impede the ability to create good relationships. Well, yeah, of course. I mean, I imagine people are looking at this. I mean, I looked at it, right? And thought, okay... If I just wanted to go to Fiji, I could organize my own trip to Fiji, right? I could go on kayak and, and get some flights and hotel or whatever. But this is clearly about 
the people that you're around. It's it's about networking. It's about growth. It's about unplugging, like you said, and it's about building those relationships. And uh, that's why I love doing things like that. I haven't done much to the extent of the things that you've been organizing, but going to events and connecting with people and, and surrounding yourself with people who are you know like minded hopefully even doing more and better things than you are so you can learn from them. That's, that's probably why most people are attracted to it. 100%. Yeah, 100%. And I think the more unique the experience is, the more it stands out in your own head and the faster you connect with people or repel people. And both of those things are great things. Because if you repel each other, great. Look, let's not hang out. Easy answer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's be clear on that. You know, it's, it's the same notion as fail fast. Like, if it's not going to work, great. Let's get done with it and not drag it out for the next six months, two years or whatever. But yeah, I like that. Well, speaking of failing fast, what's been your favorite failure? What's something that you failed at or made a mistake with that uh, was a big learning experience for you? I don't make mistakes. <laughs> it did sound like you've done a lot of great things so effortlessly. Certainly, no. there must be something, Brad. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about that mohawk, actually. Uh, mm. <laughs> favorite failures man i think that it's worth noting that i don't view them as failures yeah i think that the sooner you can get to the place of not viewing things as failures the quicker you can grow so i i've been a huge proponent of this book that came out about six months ago principles uh, oh. by ray dalio yeah such a good book and i have a quote that is intelligent people who embrace their mistakes and weaknesses substantially outperform their peers who have the same abilities, but bigger ego barriers. Recognize that mistakes are a natural part of the evolutionary process. I just think it's beautiful. And there's like a a huge chunk of the book that is around that creating a culture where it's okay to make mistakes, but not okay to not learn from them. Right. So I'm, you know, yammering about this because... (laughs) Well, I just want to add too that, I mean, I... I love learning from those things. And I, I stole that, that specific question, your favorite failure from Tim Ferriss in his latest book, Tribe of Mentors, where he asked the same set of questions to a series of entrepreneurs and other people that he admires. There's, I don't know, hundreds of them in there. And I love the answers to that question the most because so many people talk about, oh, I was trying to do this in my career and I got fired or whatever. And I was devastated at the time. But then it turned out it pointed me in the direction of this other business. And now I'm wildly successful doing the thing that I love. It's, just, it's awesome to hear those stories. It's so cool. Yeah. I think that in a lot of ways, I don't look at them as failures anymore. So I have to think about it when you ask that question. Yeah. But I can piece together a whole shitload of things that I did <laughs> that were... Well, I sometimes you know, rephrase it as things that did not go as planned. <laughs> yeah tumultuous in my past. So, you know, one is, yeah, it's probably not great to sell illegal drugs. Okay. Um, Maybe. I mean, I don't know. There's a whole dark economy in this country built on people doing that, but in general, it's not, it's kind of frowned upon by the government and you got it hundred percent. And I, I, you know, we could have a whole much bigger, large (laughs) conversation about the right or wrong or legal or not legal and where those lines cross. Right. But I sold, I'll just say marijuana when I was younger, because it's just comical at this point that that was illegal at all and still is in some way based on how things have changed. But I got arrested for it more than once. And I could view that as a mistake, except it was also the beginning of, or several steps along the path of commerce, you know, and sales and marketing. 
and also interpersonal communication as sort of bizarre as that is. <laughs> yeah. And also understanding the metric system uh, against our imperial system because drugs are frequently in the U.S. sold. Anyway, I could go down this path. I, but did, I did not know that. <laughs> yeah. Well, so like marijuana, at least at the time, was sold by the ounce right. or like an eighth of an ounce. Yeah. But I happen to know how many grams are associated to that as well because that became relevant. Got it. Uh, which is something that makes sense if you go other places in the world. But right. I, think, I think the bigger victory that came out of the mistake of being a delinquent youth is the application that ultimately came out of that in sales, mm. which was, oh man, so I've tried these other paths of selling things right. and did the math on what I would make out of it and tried to put the effort in, but didn't realize there was another vehicle. And I'd laid the foundation for doing that through that. Yeah. And you, you developed those interpersonal skills, communication, persuasion, conversion, uh, yep. and then you were able to leverage <laughs> those and move to other industries that were more legal. Yeah. So that, that's the one on the fly that I, that I came up with, but I'm sure that we've got some others. Got it. No, that's, uh, that's so cool. Now, last question, just ask you, you know, future-based, you're, you're running your payments company, you're organizing this big event with a partner, uh, the trip to Fiji. What's your vision for the future? Is it growing your company and kind of doing these things on the side? Do you see this becoming like more of a full-time, this is what you do and what you're known for? Like, what, do, what do you want to be doing a few years from now? I think that we'll see is the answer. Yeah. Um, really, what I know for sure is that adventure will have a place in my life. So the kind of the, the three major areas that I spend time, uh, three major focuses of my life are adventure. And that at the moment, a huge part of that is physical training. And right now I'm just doing a tremendous amount of running. Okay. Physical training is a part of it. And then it's EPD and it's Unplug Fiji. EPD is Easy Pay Direct. And those are the three things that I'm focused on all the time. And you know, there's lots of other lifestyle stuff that goes in there, but those are like my sort of, that's where my mental energy is. And what I know is that that personal adventure stuff will be the through line in the future because it's just a, whether it's intense physical activity or it's just some sort of unique expedition, I learn so much about myself and others when I am well past my comfort zone. Got it. Cool, man. Well, last question. You've accomplished so much and seem to be truly following your path and pursuing your dreams and the things that you want to do and really taking things you know one step at a time, which I like. For people who are maybe feeling a little bit more stuck, not quite sure where they're going and want to make some changes and maybe step out of their comfort zone and, and do more to follow their own dreams, what's one more piece of advice you would give? I'll give you two. Okay. So I think that there's... I'll divide this into finding what you're passionate about if you don't know and then how to go about pursuing it. And the finding what you're passionate about is something that uh, is a challenge for me because I, there are people that have like a, this huge mission in their life and everything drives towards this mission and they're very clear on it and they're very focused. But I think that that's really the, the small minority. And I think most of us are kind of struggling to find what, what our life purpose is. Or I heard somebody say not long ago, you don't have to know your life vision. You just need to know what you're going to do next. So I read a book called The Passion Test, which I think was uh, really helpful in systematically isolating what's important to you. A great friend of mine, Brother James, who's a musician, Brother James. I know Brother James. Brother James is one of my best friends. That's um, awesome. Yeah, I've met him. And yeah, he turned me on to that. 
that book, but also is really, really following his passion. So he really walks the walks the talk um, or the song, I suppose. But the other is do something every day, like commit to something and do it every day. And look, I don't even care if you're clear that it's your absolute passion in life. Just pick what you're going to do next and take some action every single day because those things compound. And I promise you, there are a huge chunk of people here listening that get excited and then forget about it three months later or two months later or a week later. And they only forget about it. It's not because they're not passionate or excited about it. It's because they didn't take action every day. And if you just build the habit of taking action every day, that compounds. And the easiest way to do that, by the way, is to get in the habit of doing that with things you already do. So you brush your teeth every day, make some other small lifestyle decision that you're going to do every day. Say, you know what? I'm going to do this every day for the next 30. Right? The reason that I think the, the mantra of how you do one thing is how you do everything is so valuable is because it builds a habit. And if you get in the habit of always making the tougher choice or of like one of the other things that I tell myself is I'll just do one more. That ultimately was how I tackled the mountain challenge was I'm just going to do one more. Now, is it always good to do one more? No. Not at at 2 a.m. when you've already had 10 drinks, but that's a different story, right? Exactly, right? (laughs) So you you need to apply some logic, but there are times where like, is it always good to do, you know, the 11th rep at the gym? No, probably not. But I can tell you that in that moment, even though, you know, it might push your body a little bit harder and into the negative space, like you not growing, but pain and hurting, the pattern of that frequently building the habit can have longer lasting positive benefits than that momentary negative. And so the habit is really, really valuable. Those are my two thoughts. Build some momentum around it. Yeah, I love that. So, you know, think about discovery, your passion. You don't have to know what your long-term vision is, just where you're going next and start taking action every day, incremental steps, small things to build those positive, healthy habits using consistency. And I've, I've done the same thing ever since I first read The Miracle Morning by Hal Elrod about uh, almost three years ago now. And I've been practicing it every single day since then. And it has absolutely transformed my life because of all the small actions I've been taking every single day. And so I agree with everything you said 100% because it's worked for me and I've seen it work for other people. And I know if you're listening that it can work for you. It doesn't have to be the whole thing, but just starting with those small actions to make the changes you want to make. I love that. Yeah. It's better to do something than than nothing. If you don't have time to do the whole thing, it's still better to do something because it keeps the habit going. Yeah. Okay. You can't get a lot of people rationalize the thing of, Hey, I can't get to the gym for an hour or I can't get to the gym for a half hour. Do five minutes. Just do something. Right. It's not binary. Do some pushups, do something with the little amount of time you have. It makes a difference. I love it. Brad, we got to wrap up for anybody listening uh, who wants to get in touch with you or find out more about the trip. Where do they go again? Yeah. You can go to unpluggedfiji.com for the trip. And you can you can find me online pretty easily. I feel like I own the domain mohawkbrad.com, but I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have to check that out. I'll have to check that out. But Brad Weimer, W-E-I-M-E-R-T. And I'm pretty much, uh, you know, I'm on all the, the socials and the webs. <laughs> Got it. Cool. Well, Brad, thanks so much for coming on the show and, and sharing some of your... Uh, your story and your experience and your wisdom. Uh, I really appreciate it. I got a lot out of it and I hope our listeners as well. So thanks again for coming on the podcast. 
Yeah, great talking, man. All right, take care.